Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'm talking with Elaine Kmark, who is the author of How Change Happens or Doesn't, The Politics of U.S. Public Policy. Elaine, how are you doing today? Fine, thank you. Thank you for calling me. Yeah, no, it's a real pleasure. An interesting, very interesting book, and you have a very interesting background. Before we get to some of your um, previous career uh, work, maybe you can tell us just a little bit about what your current appointments are, where you are now, what what you do currently. Well, I'm um, on the faculty at the Kennedy School at Harvard, and I'm I took a leave of absence uh, this past year to come to Brookings in Washington and set up a Center for Effective Public Management. And so I'm a senior fellow at Brookings, and we are setting up a new center that hopes to um, actually explore a lot of the things that are in the book, the intersection of politics and policy. Yeah, and you've certainly drawn on what you're doing now, but also what your career was before this. We can't separate these two, but, nope. but uh, you served President Clinton. Um, how did you get involved with the Clinton administration, and, and what role did you play in the uh, early 90s? Um, I was one of the original uh, New Democrats who worked at the Democratic Leadership Council, and my colleague, Bill Galston, and I wrote um, a paper called The Politics of Evasion, which was a kind of game plan for the Democrats in the late 80s to try to get them out of their persistent losing streak. And we, because of that, we both then were involved with the DLC. We were involved with President Clinton and um, went into the White House. Um, I went into the White House to run a program called Reinventing Government, which was the largest government reform effort uh, really since the... um, since the 1930s, when Roosevelt was busy creating the modern federal government, we it was an eight-year effort, went through the whole time of the Clinton administration, and it was basically a modernization of the federal government. But along the way, I've served as I'm a member of the Democratic National Committee. I've been in campaigns. I've done a lot of politics as well as policy, and that's what I tried to bring together in this book. Yeah, and the book has, uh, and, and I'm, I'm sure it's drawn from the importance of language to your career. And, and you have such interesting phrases, and, and that, that really do, I think, express some things that are that are hard to express just with numbers. And so you have this phrase at the beginning of the book where you say the the space between Rahm Emanuel and Joseph Stieglitz. <laughs> uh, I wonder if you could tell us about this space. You tell us about these two individuals many people know. But tell us about this space and what goes on in between the two of these uh, uh, real important figures over the last 20 to 30 years. Well, the I mean, politics and policy, like many other fields in, in the modern era, you know, medicine or something like that, has become very, very specialized. So uh, what you get are you in, and what you find in a government and administration that comes together and um, is you find very different kinds of personalities. You find very pure political types like Rahm Emanuel, although now that he's a mayor, I'm sure he's having to deal with more policy than he ever imagined. Um, but people who are interested in politics, politics, winning, and transactions. They're really transactional people. They're very good at the uh, the transactional part of government. 
and they tend to be dismissive of the details of the policy world. And then you get people like brilliant Nobel Prize winner Joe Stiglitz, who are just who have enormous insights and are and enormously creative minds, but they're not always the type of person who can drive a policy home or drive it to completion because that's not kind of how they think. That's not sort of what they do. And the change happens when you get actually a magic combination kind of of the two, right? You get the the politics and the transactional piece of this right, and you get the the policy and the details of the policy right. And that's why change is so hard is because it's not just a the kind of exercise that you know we teach our students or you teach your students about what good policy is. And it's not just getting the votes and and putting the interest groups together. It really is a kind of combination of the two. And that's not usually, uh, that hasn't been appreciated, I think, in the political science literature, which is one of the reasons I wrote the book. Yeah, it, it feels like, you didn't say it, but it feels like you're describing the relationship between Bill and Hillary Clinton, yeah. uh, which maybe we can go back to in a little bit. But it sure does sound like some of the strengths that each of them brought to the White House uh, when you were serving there. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about the book before we get to that. Uh, you you break up the book and you say you identify six critical sectors, the the problem, the solution, the inside players, and so forth. What does framing the book and your approach to policy change using these sectors allow you to do? What, what could we understand about policy using these, the, this frame that we might not from, from existing approaches? Uh, well, you know, a lot of political science talks about, there's a rich political science on agenda building, getting things onto the agenda, uh, policy streams, etc. What this does is it takes that one step further, because getting some things get on the agenda with some regularity, but that doesn't mean anything happens, <laughs> okay? Um, immigration reform being a very good example of that. So what I outline in each of these areas is a set of questions, which are really an analytic. It, it It's sort of building a model, but it doesn't, I, I wouldn't go so far as to call it a model because not only could it never have the precision of a model, it shouldn't have the precision of a model. The world doesn't fit into models. I hate to tell my political science friends, <laughs> but mm-hmm. it's just not that neat and simple. On the other hand, there are, if you've watched enough policy and politics over the years, you can sit down and give a pr- lay out a pretty good map for any policy project and say and and answer some questions and kind of make a determination about strategy and about the probability of failure or success. So in the in the book I talk a lot about failures and I talk a lot about successes and you can see all the complex variables that go into failure or success. We often focus on just the successes and, and uh, don't spend enough time with the failures. I wonder if you have any examples that, that you observed or, or you were closely involved with where you learned a lot about uh, the policy process from a failure 
or you have integrated that into your teaching or, or how you approach the policy world? Is there a failure that, that sticks out to you in, in what you've observed? Well, there's a couple, and I put most of them in the book. Um, the the big one that I had a front row seat to was um, Hillary Clinton's health care failure that I refer to in various parts of the book because it is illustrative of a lot of the mistakes that um, people make in, in this world. And And by the way, I mean, presidents of the United States – make these mistakes, okay? Senior members of Congress. In, in other words, these are, um, these are mistakes that seasoned professionals also make. Um, but for instance, in 1993 and 1994, people were not very aware of the important difference in the public opinion polling between people saying that healthcare was a big problem and people saying that they really liked their own health care and their own doctor. And that, if you, had, if you had studied political behavior and you knew about the difference between, you know, action versus attitudes um, or opinions versus behavior, which is a sort of classic political science literature, you might have stopped and said, uh-oh, this is a problem. Right. If people think they're going to lose their health care, that will trump any attitude that they happen to have, any general opinion they happen to have about the United States healthcare system in general. And sure enough, that is in, indeed what happened in 1994 when um, Hillary, Hillary Clinton's health care plan bit the dust. Uh, so that that I had a front row seat to. And I remember and I think I put this in the book, um, running into my colleague Bill Galston in the hallways of the White House, and we were both looking at this AEI study that was making this point. Uh, and we both said, boy, this is trouble. But nobody kind of got it at, at the time. Now, um, ironically, Obama got that point very, very clearly. He understood the difference between attitude and behavior and so went overboard to assure people that they wouldn't lose their health care. And, of course, uh, that wasn't completely accurate. And so, as you can imagine, now he's, he's suffering the consequences of that. But that's the, that's the kind of subtlety in understanding public opinion that, um, you know, very seasoned political people don't get. Yeah, you're provocative in this book. One of the titles to your chapter is about bipartisanship. Mm -hmm. You argue that bipartisanship is overrated, and this might come as a surprise to <laughs> those that heard you are affiliated with the uh, uh, the Brookings Institute and, and you have had the, the career you've had. So uh, what do you mean by this? Uh, why is bipartisanship overrated? Well, because it simply doesn't work all the time. Because the And particularly in the examples I use in there, and, and immigration reform in 2006-2007 is one of the best examples. Um, bipartisanship can often be swamped by factions. And the point I make in, in that chapter and elsewhere in the book is that you really have to go beyond understanding parties. You have to understand the factions that are that compose American political parties. Since we are a two-party system, um, each party is a great big kind of messy family 
Um, some people have described American political parties as kind of dysfunctional families, you know, where half the time, half, half the time they, they hate each other <laughs> vehemently. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that is, was interesting about the story of immigration reform in the Bush administration is if you had looked at this, you would have said, oh my goodness, of course this is going to pass. You've got a Republican president. You've got a Democratic newly elected, very popular Democratic Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and a Democratic Senate, and you've got big-time senators like um, Senator Kennedy all for this. Of course, this is going to pass. Well, you know, what ended up being a lot more important than bipartisanship were, was the energy in the the very overt energy in the right-wing faction of the Republican Party and the less overt but nonetheless fairly intense opposition of the Black Caucus in Congress. And nobody really saw that. You know, nobody, including the big shots, right? They they were kind of surprised by um, the Republican side, by the intensity of the opposition, on the Democratic side, by the uh, kind of lack of interest on on the part of the most important piece of the Democratic constituency, African Americans. They're 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 really lukewarm attitude, if not opposition, to immigration reform. And so that's why, you know, that's just one of the examples where the bipartisanship doesn't always doesn't always give you the success you think it's going to. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit there. towards the end of the book. I, you had some interesting things to say about the reaction of your students to your approach, um, an approach you describe as or maybe they described as, as a, a real politique view of the policy process. How do you reconcile this with students? Uh, on the one hand, we, we strive to tap into their, their moral outrage and, mm-hmm. and beliefs about right and wrong, and but you suggest something else. Uh, I wonder if you could talk about that, and, and the, the, um, particularly in the context of the response you expect from your book. Well, I, it is very much a real politique book. There's no doubt about it. But one of the things I always said to the students, both in class and, you know, after class is, look, you must understand how these things work. Because, you know, if you actually want change, you, you've you got to understand all the dynamics in the system. And you have to be able to put yourself in the heads of the opposition. People who can't do that have a very, very hard time figuring out accurate strategy. And what I told them all at the beginning is, you know, I'm not particularly interested in whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, whether you're conservative or a liberal. I want you to to hold beliefs and, and, you know, decide what you think is the right way for the greater good. I'm here to talk to you and teach about the ways that people are successful and the ways that they fail in achieving in achieving their objectives. I think that it's the approach in the book and the approach you just uh, just described. I think it's such an interesting um, take on the policy process. And there's obviously a lot of very good books that that take on a similar subjects. But uh, your perspective, I think, adds just so much to uh, to to what you've written. Um, What's next for you? Um, you described at the start a little bit of your, your current work, but what is, uh, what's next on your writing agenda? Do you have another book project or something non-book related that we can look forward to? 
I am I'm looking forward to um, working on a piece on presidents as managers. Uh, because I think that it has been there's new interest in this topic because of the uh, health care problems that President Obama is encountering. And I'm seeing a lot of similarities in the management problems to, ironically, uh, to the failure of the uh, Iranian hostage rescue in 1980. Okay, so um, I'm interested in it. I'm going to do some exploration about presidents as managers. And I've got a book that I've been kind of working on and off on for a long time about the relationship between presidents and their vice presidents. Um, with the thesis being relatively simple, which is that um, that relationship has changed in recent years because the job of the president has gotten so big and because the balancing that we used to take for granted as necessary to put together a ticket no longer seems to be quite as important as it used to be. Um, and therefore, once you once you get rid of balancing as a criterion for picking a vice president, um, then actually the president and vice president can be friends. They can like each other, they can trust each other, and they can help each other. And so I'm interested in exploring the dynamic between presidents and their vice presidents. Yeah, well, it sounds really interesting, as, as is your current book published this year by Lynn Reiner, How Change Happens or Doesn't, Politics of U.S. Public Policy by Elaine K. Mark. Elaine, thank you very much for your time today. Well, thank you, Keith. It's very nice to talk to you.